the biggest threat to your and your, your clan or your family or your business, it's typically not external issues. It's typically not making bad investments. It is internal. It is the issues that are eating away at your family. It is the qualitative dynamics of how you manage these relationships across multiple generations that will blow you up. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome in, Contrarian Cashflow. I've got Brian Adams with me today. Brian, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey, I'm doing great. It's beautiful out and I'm excited to be here. So thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. So Brian, originally from New York, now in Nashville with his beautiful family, syndicator in the office space. So Brian, what are you, what are you up to right now? What are you working on? Yeah, obviously with COVID, it's been a bit of a different year, I think would be an understatement of the century probably, but we have been fairly active. You know, we continue to see growth in these secondary markets people leaving the Northeast and the West Coast to go to the interior Midwest or the Southeast Sunbelt. So we are under contract in our third acquisition for this year and actively looking for a fourth. So very busy. We have had a few tenants who have had exposure to COVID-related industries, have some issues, so we continue to work through that. Knock on wood, I think we're pretty well positioned to uh, continue to be active moving forward and continue to be able to provide distributions for our investors. That's awesome. I mean, all things considered, I would say that's probably as good as you can expect with the, with the craziness that COVID has brought on. So one of the big things that I want to talk about is you used to be, you know, in your previous life, you were an attorney and now obviously you're a syndicator for multi-tenant office building. So what was that journey like and, and why did you go from attorney, you know, successful career now into multifamily or into office syndication? So I was a, a district attorney. I was a prosecutor here in Nashville, and it was a great job. I love being able to try cases. I love being able to help the community. And, you know, frankly, I was in a social network where it was different than the norm. I wasn't just, you know, a finance guy. And so I really enjoyed it. But ultimately, I started to hang out with entrepreneurs. I started talking to my father-in-law, who is a first-generation wealth creator himself. And I always kind of wanted to know whether or not I could do it, frankly. And I attended a class at Owen here at Vanderbilt in the business school. And I'll never forget the professor, Michael Bertram. He's had multiple successful exits, healthcare person, really interesting guy himself, said, you know, take a look at the Fortune 500. And if you take away everyone who, you know, became wealthy through marriage or inheritance, you've got three basic buckets. You've got people who are doing the corporate gig right? They worked at Apple for forever and they got a bunch of stock options and they just kind of grinded it out, did the latter and made a lot of money. Or people who started a company, right? Venture capital entrepreneur had an idea in a garage and kind of took it from zero to 60. And then there was really the other bucket, which was real estate, commodities, natural resources, etc. And I thought that was probably the smartest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I started having coffee with all those people, anyone who's willing to meet with me to learn about their journey and how they felt about the world. And the corporate guys, they all worked really hard, very difficult, long journey, 
probably not for me. Yep. On the entrepreneur venture side, it seemed like a really crowded space. There were a lot of really smart people with a lot of capital behind them looking for the next, at the time, Facebook or something probably. So it seemed like a competitive landscape. And then I started to hang out with real estate guys and half of these people didn't seem like they worked terribly hard, didn't seem like they were terribly intelligent and they're all doing pretty well. And I thought, man, I can just hustle a little bit, leverage my network, try a little bit harder. And I think I can carve out a decent niche for myself here. And so that's kind of how I ended up in real estate, frankly. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that I just love from your side is that you're always so intentional, right? So instead of just saying, ah, you know, real estate, right? I mean, you really took the time to peel back the onion. So where'd you get that, you know, that mindset and that mentality to really look at things 360 instead of just, hey, real estate sounds great. I'm going to jump in head first. I think part of this whole journey and the story is, and I think I want to be very open about it is I enjoy immense privilege for being a well-educated white person male in America. In addition to that, I married into a very affluent family. So I was able to get access to almost anybody in Nashville that I wanted to. And I took full advantage of it. And I would sit down and have coffee and I would just tell people, what's your story? How did you go from A to Z? What were the biggest mistakes you made? What were the right calls you made? And kind of like this interview, frankly, when you ask people to tell you about themselves, they're going to talk. I mean, people like to talk about themselves. It's a natural thing. And so you start seeing themes though, across these multiple conversations, when people took risk, how they took risk, and where, you know, they went against the grain in a lot of ways. And some of the themes that I saw, and I posted about this before on LinkedIn, conventional wisdom is, you know, diversification, multiple asset classes, you know, inflation hedges, all these things that we worry about. But that's for people who want to stay rich. You talk to people about how they actually got rich, massive concentration with high leverage and a really big risk appetite. And I don't care what the asset class is or the story, but those are three things that you see. And that's kind of why I started the company. I wanted to create a scalable, repeatable business where I could do all three of those things, but I'm not really a risk taker per se. So in more of a prudent fashion, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really interesting dynamic that you're talking about there around being wealthy and trying to attain wealth. And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with sometimes when they're going through this journey is understanding that their risk profile and the type of investments that they make needs to change over time. You know, if you want to get to the level you would want to attain, you need to take on more risk. But then as you build that portfolio and it gets larger and larger, then you need to start hedging a little bit more against those risk factors. But I think that's in real estate. And I, th- I think that's a really interesting dynamic in multifamily versus a lot of other spaces is people are talking about growing wealth, but the return profiles that they're talking about are barely beating inflation if you look at it on a macro long-term scale. And so I think, you know, to your point about how these people attained wealth and got successful, they were taking massive risk and they were, they were using high leverage. They were, they were doing the things that, you know, in turn, the downside could potentially be a negative impact on their life. And I think that when people are pursuing these passions, they really need to understand that there are two sides to the coin. You have to have the appetite and the ability to take on that risk and be successful and not be miserable or not, you know, not be around for your family and whatever. So I love that point. So, I mean, I don't know if it can really get much more contrarian than office, right? Within, within real estate. I mean, so what was the journey to office. So you picked real estate, but now now you're in office. So so what was the journey like to get actually to the office asset class? Yeah, I mean, you look across all the food groups and you try to get as much free advice as you can. And even back when I started the company, retail was a dying industry. You could kind of see the writing on the wall and read the tea leaves there. Multifamily, which sounds kind of crazy for people who are just getting in the game today, but I'm telling you, even 10, 12 years ago, it was a crowded trade. I mean, massive private equity 
with institutional investors backing them, bringing down cap rates, going out on the risk spectrum. That was all happening, you know, and I know it's been a great ride for people over the last 20 years, but I don't like competing in businesses where people who are super smart and well capitalized are on the other sideline. And that's what multifamily felt like. It just felt like a very difficult place to, to carve out a niche. And industrial warehouse and, and flex, I wasn't smart enough to get in that game early. So it just wasn't really on the forefront. And office seemed like a place where when I talked to my peer group and network and potential investors, their office exposure was typically, you know, through a fund of funds or REITs or maybe a one-off deal that their buddy brought to them. But there was no really professional middle market managers bringing them opportunities. And so I felt like, well, you know, here's a space that the market is kind of wishy-washy on. And there seemed like there could be appetite there. And I think it's important to your point which is a really good one. It's about the risk-adjusted returns, right? So if you're going to do a brand new class A multifamily deal in a primary market, that's great. But it's probably not the right thing for a taxable high net worth individual if you're buying it at a forecast. It's all about that risk-reward trade-off. And office seemed to be a good middle ground where I could still buy things at an eight cap or a seven cap. I could still solve for an eight to 10% cash on cash yield. And I didn't think the risk was there. I thought the market was, that there was an inefficiency there that I could take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it gets back to that point about how you even got to real estate in the first place. I love the way that you talk about why you got into office. And, and one of the benefits of office is the credit worthiness of many of the tenants. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the recent deals that you had in Kansas City, I mean, you're working with some of the top companies in the world that have office space within your building. So, I mean, I guess kind of comparing that to say, you know, obviously A class in primary markets in a multifamily, but let's say like, you know, B minus or C plus deal, even in a primary market versus, you know, some of these deals you're taking down and say even the most recent deal here in Overland Park, I mean, you're taking on some pretty interesting tenants and some recession resistant ones. So what's kind of the tenant profile of the buildings that you guys, the multi-tenant buildings that you guys take down? Yeah, it's a mixed bag between local regional credit and true, you know, institutional credit rated tenants. I'd say it's probably 50-50 across the portfolio. And you know, I think that's another issue that people have with offices, commoditized space. You can't really differentiate yourself in the marketplace. And I think that's just a simplification because what we saw in the downturn during 08 was that, you know, and COVID is a good example of this. In 08, we saw financial institutions, were, which were considered bulletproof, really struggle Whereas your local CPA firm, which is, you know, maybe has one or two offices in the marketplace, was completely fine and very resilient. And I think we've seen that again with COVID, where last year, if you had Delta as your tenant, credit rated, their debt traded at par, unbelievable. You're going to pay up for that user. Now their bond status is junk. I think there's a real misappreciation for the local regional credit rated tenants that you have to constantly kind of fight back with and say, well, if things go bad, who are the people you're still going to pay? And typically it's going to be your service professionals and your financial professionals who are in your network, who are in your community. They might not be the, the sexiest tenant, but they pay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those are some great points. I think even kind of now within that, that's that's one of the things I've struggled with is is through COVID. I have friends that are doctors, dentists in these professions that you feel are, are to your point, bulletproof. And you know, my my uh, my friend, his wife is a general physician or general practitioner down in Sanford, so not too far from here, and she's been furloughed, you know, many times. And 
you know, through no fault of her own. So it, it, it's interesting, just, you know, no matter, I don't think, I guess bulletproof maybe is, is an unfair term to kind of deem anything nowadays, just because there's always going to be risk in everything that you, you take on, regardless of any investment, multifamily office, equities, whatever the case is, it just has to align with what that risk profile you're willing to take. But having money sitting in a savings account is in my my opinion, even more risky than not doing anything uh, to invest the money. So another point I wanted to talk about, I know you talked about the privilege that, that, you know, married into an affluent family, everybody wants to be, you know, become wealthy and, and, and maintain a certain lifestyle and generational wealth. And it sounds so sexy and great and everybody should want it. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was kind of look at the other side of it, because there are also some struggles as well. Again, you know, you guys aren't struggling to put food on the table or, you know, your, your living expenses are covered, but there's also some responsibility and some risk factors in maintaining that level of wealth. So would you mind kind of speaking to the listeners a little bit about, you know, what it takes and, and what additional steps you need to take to ensure that your family is, is maintaining that wealth and, and hopefully growing it as well? I think there's a, a misconception out there amongst the sponsored community about pitching family offices or what family offices are or aren't. There's an adage in the space that once you meet one family office, you've met one family office. And, and they're just like your family. They are crazy. They have personalities. They have problems. They have strengths and weaknesses. They just have a lot more zeros behind their numbers. But it doesn't mean that they're not real people who have real problems. And I think it can be very hard, especially in today's environment, to be empathetic towards people who have wealth that also have problems. And I think the best way that you could build a relationship with one of these groups is by just being friendly with them and being a resource with them. And you have to understand that, to your point, if you have that mindset of being a multi-generational family office it's very difficult to maintain your quality of life. I don't care what your denominator number is. Don't you factor in inflation, your cost of living, overhead, whatever that operating expense is to maintain that quality of life because it's going to cost money. And then the multiplication and the uh, exponential growth of your family, if you have three kids and they have three kids, it's a very heavy burden to come up with structures, estate planning and investment planning that can maintain that over 50, 75 years. And so I'm not saying that these people should be given medals, but it's essentially running a small business. And how many people do you know that have run a privately held small business for more than two or three generations? It's very hard. So I think if you can begin that conversation by being empathetic and helpful and a resource, you can build up that karma over time. But if you just go in there and hard pitch them, I just don't think you're going to get a great response. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the points that you've made before that, I, that, that really stuck with me is around building your personal board of directors and kind of that architecture. So, you know, for somebody that is totally out of the family office space or for those that, you know, aspire to grow that, that wealth, what's kind of some of the best practices you've seen for, for family offices or for, for even maybe families that have kind of attained that level of wealth? that have kind of built that infrastructure and that mindset. Cause I guess that's what I'm trying to get at through all of this is at the end of the day, it comes down to mindset. And if you're not teaching your future generations how to handle that money appropriately, they're going to squander it because they haven't been taught how to appropriate those funds properly and, and the risks they should take at their level of tolerance. So from your experience, what, what are the factors that have led to people being successful, the architecture they've built around them to attain that third, fourth, fifth generation of wealth? Yeah. So I'm going to leverage my liberal arts education here and, refer to to Beowulf, which 
great story. You should go back and refresh it if it's been a while. But the big takeaway there is, and I think this is hugely applicable across the board, the biggest threat to your and your, your clan or your family or your business, it's typically not external issues. It's typically not making bad investments. It is internal. It is the issues that are eating away at your family. It is the qualitative dynamics of how you manage these relationships across multiple generations that will blow you up every time. And so I think nowadays it's even more important because of, frankly, some of the chaos we're living through. And I think some of the impacts of social media that you need to be even more communicative and even be a better listener than you were prior in order to maintain that continuity across multiple generations. Because if it's just about the money and if it's just about the returns, I think it's very difficult to be successful for more than two generations in a family. I think it has to be more about the culture and your identity and the story and being a good steward for multiple generations of families for a higher purpose. And that can be very different for every different family, but I don't think it can just be about the metrics and the dollar figures, because then you lose touch with that culture. And so, you know, for me, I think it's important to have the wealth manager and the estate and tax attorney, but honestly, it's just as important to have, you know, a therapist in the house or, you know, somebody who's able to facilitate these conversations so that would be my kind of free advice there. Yeah, that that's awesome. I mean, I just that's the stuff that I'm trying to get to on this is that, you know, you got to be able to 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 change your mind and have that thought process to say it is it is for a higher purpose. It's great to chase money and dollar signs and everybody wants to be wealthy and well off and and be able to provide for their family, but if it's strictly around just the dollar signs, that's ultimately going to lead to, you know, because then you're not going to teach your children. You're going to say, okay, here's the nice car. Here's the private college education, right? They're not going to, they're not going to feel the same level of attainment that you do when you're going out there and struggling to, to make those ends meet and to, to bring on those opportunities. So that's outstanding. A little bit of an, on the negative side of things. So when you do talk to family offices and you see disputes, like you said, family office at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're families. And a lot of times there is some craziness that goes on and happens. So I did kind of want to touch on a little bit. I mean, what type of struggles have you seen in regards to, you know, either generations moving on and then fight, you know, infighting potentially between generations in terms of estates and stuff? I mean, so what, what have you seen from your experience, some struggles and some negative family implications from, from this wealth overall? I mean, I, I think I've seen a lot of different things. I wouldn't know where to start, but the <laughs> fact pattern that you often see is, you know, a first generation wealth creator entrepreneur that has trouble giving up control over an entity that created. And frankly, there's often a dynamic of, you know, this first generation wealth creator built this infrastructure of this family office, but he never asked anybody else in the family if they wanted it. And there's some resentment and dynamics there of, well, I built this big, beautiful thing. What do you mean you don't want to do it? Because that was his vision or her vision. It wasn't their vision. And that's when it comes down to communicating. And I don't just mean, you know, Russian democracy where you have to vote, but there's only one candidate. I mean, an actual engaged conversation of, well, if this is a multi-generational corpus, an investment vehicle for the benefit of my lineal descendants, it's probably worth talking to my little lineal descendants about what they want, but that conversation typically never happens. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, that, that's so important. I mean, and it's funny because everything you're saying stems from communication, right? You know, communication between generations. And, and I guess back to that higher purpose, I think through a lot of this, from what I'm learning is, I think people are chasing dollar signs or they're chasing this, this goal that they think is going to be important to them. But once they attain it, is that really what they've wanted? You know, and, it, and it's great, like you said, to be at the top of the mountain. But now all of a sudden, if, you know, you're, you know, multiple time divorced, you're, you don't talk to your kids, you know, you've got all this money and these means, but maybe people don't want that. And I think that's just people need to really take a deep dive into their life and understand what they want from it and understand everybody has struggles. Of course, some people are better off or more privileged than others. But at the end of the day, you know, you really need to take advantage and handle on your life that's in front of you. Yeah, it, and it, it, it can be very hard because you're in an isolated environment where there's very few people that are empathetic towards your position. And I found that reflecting on death daily, not in a morbid way, but in a, this is something that will come to me and it will be something that comes to my wife, will be something that comes to my children. Like ultimately we're all worm food. And I had a call this morning with this family office relationship. He lives in Jackson Hole. He lives ostensibly a terrific life. They own sports teams, like professional sports teams. And they're getting crushed right now, right? And so for you, you would say, yeah, but. But for him, the glass is half empty for sure right now. And I think it's very hard when you're a scrappy sponsor entrepreneur pitching these people. It's very difficult to truly be empathetic and put yourselves in their shoes and say, I don't understand. Writing a million dollar check for them is like a rounding error. Yeah, but that is not the point. Yeah, no. They are having issues and struggles just like everybody else. And you have to be comfortable with that. I mean, they're not an institutional private equity group with no soul. These are real people. Right, right. No, that, that's it's a not, great point. It's not the right capital partner for everybody. Even though you think it's going to be this great AUM, it, you know, it's it's about managing that relationship as much from the sponsor as from the family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one thing I'm always curious about, so I'm a father, uh, you know, you're a father as well. So so what's the family dynamic like, you know? So, I mean, you've got, you've got your syndication business, you've got your father-in-law, you've got the family office that, you know, you're on the, you know, that you're within. So what is that dynamic like? And what are those dinnertime conversations with, with your wife and then kind of the, the immediate family as well, just around, you know, kind of how you guys are looking to move to that next generation and ensuring that they're set up for success? Yeah, we try to keep guardrails up. Well, we, we try not to talk about business after the sun goes down, unless we're on a family retreat or it's a board call or a, a meeting or a business dinner. But I, our household tries very hard to delineate between work and play to avoid blurring those lines. And there's different engagement across the family, as you can imagine. One of the culture points for us is that everyone has to have a day job. You have to work. And the family partnership and the corpus is there to allow you to be of service or be an entrepreneur. Because we know that every generation needs to have a wealth creator in order to maintain this long term. Or it's just a cushion that allows you to be a nurse or a teacher. Or for a while, I was a district attorney getting paid very little. And I still managed to have a very nice quality of life. So those are kind of the touch points for us, but it can be very difficult. I mean, next week, I've got a bunch of evening meetings just to do with family business. And it's tricky as a son-in-law. I'm not directly benefiting from this, right? I certainly am through my wife and I get to have all these great things and this nice life. But I mean, when he passes away, those dollars are not coming to me. And yet I'm spending a lot of time and energy there. And we have another cultural point where we don't pay people in the family to do the work. It's just expensive 
expected of you. So I don't have a great answer for you other than it's a work in progress. And I think you need to be really mindful of carving out specific time to focus on it, but also being really good about carving out time to not work because after you put away your day job, there's always more that you could be doing on the family side, but it could lead, it'll lead to burnout and that's not productive for anybody. Yeah. Well, I love that guardrail analogy because I think that's one thing that, of course, we're not at the scale, but you know, my wife and I are dealing with different different scenarios, be it entrepreneurial or you know, just through our W2 careers. And I think that's, we do a pretty good job, but we, we could do even better about you know turning the phones off and not being, it was something I was really good at before COVID. And I don't know why, but forever, I guess I'm just waiting since things are in slow motion, I'm just waiting for something to happen, you know? So I'm just yeah, like, this is a good, this is a good topic and a good, I read an article about this and I suffered from it too. It's almost because the world is so messy that you don't want to switch work off because dealing with the reality of what's happening is worse than work. That's, I didn't think about it that way. That, so, I mean, I know for me, psychologically, this has been a struggle. I mean, I'm an outgoing person. I'm a sales guy. I'm an outside sales. And so that's, that's what I really aspire to and go meet customers, go on site, go lunches, dinners, you know, social events and gatherings. And so that's been one of the struggles for me, at least in North Carolina, we haven't, you know, we're, we're fairly open, but still businesses aren't, you know, corporations aren't open and things of that sort. So no, that's a really interesting perspective. And I, I that totally makes sense. So um, maybe I shouldn't and, be so hard on myself. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you should be kind to yourself and also be understanding that between the day job of being a sponsor and the evening job of the family, you could work 20 hours a day, but are you actually creating value 20 hours a day? That's where I think the big takeaway is, is like, we can all work really hard, but you know, so do washing machines. Like, what are you doing? Are you providing value or creating value? And that's where I think COVID has been a good reset for me personally is, you know, maybe I don't need to travel as much as I used to. Maybe I don't need to put in all the hours I used to. And I can actually be more productive in a lot of ways because I have more energy, fresher perspective and a different mindset after I actually take time off. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, this has been a reset for all of us, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we've all looked at things that we felt were important to us before and, and probably realigned things that were lesser important to us. And now they're, you know, we're like, we can't live without this. This has got to be something within our lives. So that's an outstanding point. So well, I've got one more question before uh, the last contrarian three pack. So for somebody that, you know, is earlier in career and, you know, in a successful role and, and having a decent amount of income, but looking to attain that, that next level. I mean, what is kind of your, your recommendation for them? You've talked to a lot of different people. You've seen a lot of different perspectives. What does it take to get from successful upper middle class to the level that you can actually attain generational wealth and start potentially building your own family office? Yeah, I think it goes back to one of the lessons I learned very early on, which is oftentimes you meet with successful people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and you know the story looks really clean from there. When you talk to this person, they're like, oh, well, they started this company, and then it went public, and it was great, and now they've got a diverse portfolio of stuff. But if you actually put the truth serum in them and ask them, it was a mess, probably. And like, there were probably a lot of people that are upset. There are probably a lot of you know tears. But again, you know, I think massive concentration and massive leverage is what it takes if you want to get there. But I mean, if you look at you know Bezos and these other guys, majority of their wealth is still tied up in a single asset. Yeah. Yep. They just have a ton of zeros, so it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But, you know, that's how they got there. And that's that's typically, those guys typically don't change very much throughout their careers. And I think that's something that you see repeated across, you know, if you look at barons of the 19th century, etc. 
they picked an industry and they went all in on it. And so it's not for the faint of heart because that has huge risks associated with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously it's been a theme throughout this conversation, but I think that mindset and understanding back to the risk tolerance, if you want to attain that level of success and that level of wealth, it's going to be a struggle. You know, there's going to be a lot of pain points across the, along the way. And can you really push through those struggles and, and those roadblocks? Yeah. And I think it's important too, when you can get somebody who has had a ton of success and will be very open and honest with you. You know, I know I've experienced this myself when I set certain milestones or had that mindset of when I do this, everything's going to be great. Oftentimes when you hit those milestones, it frankly more depressing than not because you realize I don't feel any different. And, you know, you look at these guys, I mean, Warren Buffett doesn't live with his wife. Bezos is divorced. Bill Gates used to work a ton. He used to memorize his employees' license plates and see who was there at two or three in the morning. He would do drive-bys and he would track it all. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but you have to make that decision that that's how you want to live. Yeah. It's not for everybody. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that's kind of that that was the whole point about going kind of down that generational wealth path was that you got to give up something, right? It's not you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to get to that level and, and reach that level, and you know, there's plenty of publications written about Einstein and some of these great, you know, great people, but you look at their social spectrum and they've created these tremendous things, they've had scientific breakthroughs, but at the end of the day, at least everything I've looked at psychologically and all the readings that I've had are around relationships. And as you invest in those relationships back to the communication. People aren't going to lie in their deathbed saying, Hey, I wish I could have worked more. It's, Hey, I wish I could have spent more time with the ones that I loved. And I think that's kind of, you know, kind of the basis for this whole conversation is just make sure that what you're willing to give up is, is going to be worth it in the end for, for the outcome that you want to aspire to. So, all right. So I got three questions for you. So the contrarian three pack. So I know this one's a little, a little bit off, uh, but uh, so what, what do you think the most contrarian investment is that you've made within your portfolio before? God, we've lost a lot of money in a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. We were in, we were into publishing, uh, for-profit education. We actually just went in on energy right now, which I know is a little bit controversial, but yeah, I mean, my father-in-law is a risk taker, so he's he's not afraid to to make a move like that. So you know, I personally, I'm still on that journey towards hopefully, you know, accumulating and creating wealth. So I pretty much have cash, bonds and real estate, to be honest with you. Yep. I'm totally on the market right now. You know, I don't think I have too much real estate exposure, but it's all I have personally. You know, suburban office is probably my contrarian play right now. That's where I am. So we'll I see mean, if it works out. Yeah. If anyone's following any of the content that you're putting out there on LinkedIn and, and other areas, they're going to see that suburban office... I, I'm very bullish on suburban office. I think that's a great play right now. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I am right there with you. So we talked about family. We talked about your, your kids. So what is your favorite activity that you guys do for fun when you guys have a little bit of free time away from, from the real estate and the family business? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've started being more intentional about making the weekends weekends because for a while it just kind of felt like another page of the calendar. And um, we've started doing like small group Sunday fun days where we invite five other families over. We have a big piece of property and the weather is perfect this time of year in Nashville. So we get like potluck food and everyone brings their kids over and we get like a obnoxiously big bounce house, like obstacle course thing, like Billy Madison when he graduated second grade. <laughs> and um, we just have fun with it. People bring over different things. So I think the extent that I can spend time with my kids outside, away from phones, and engage with other adults. Given everything happening right now, that's my favorite activity. 
So we're doing that again Sunday, actually. Nice, nice. Well, that sounds outstanding. I'm sure it's going to be a fun time. So what action offers you the most fulfillment outside of professional business and career uh, within your life? My children go to a uh, private school here in Nashville, and my wife and I have decided to kind of, that's going to be our focus while our children go to school there is to support that institution, both kind of with our social capital and our actual, you know, dollars capital. And so with COVID, it's a bit of a challenge right now, but we're super engaged with the school. It has a lot of really cool diversity programs that it's trying to roll out. It's very progressive. And so um, instead of kind of spreading things around, I apply the same mindset to the nonprofit space that I do to the for-profit space, which is kind of pick something that you want to, to be focused on. Don't go to all these different dinners and events, kind of go all in on one organization and institution. And so that's where we spend the majority of our efforts, I would say, both from a wallet standpoint and a, and a time and emotional standpoint. That's awesome. I mean, I think that's an area that just needs so much help in general is, is early, early childhood education. And, you know, we can argue probably about what we wished was taught in, in schools in general around right. success mindset, financial matters, right? Uh, a lot of the things that, that we've had to learn through the school of hard knocks. <laughs> I think actually, to your point earlier, I think education is super interesting. And the way people give to education or don't, because it's just like single family homes and a multifamily apartments because everyone has at one point gone to school. So they think they're an expert about educational policy. And I think multifamily suffers from the same fate of, well, I was a, I rented an apartment for years. I can do this. Well, maybe, maybe not. Absolutely. It's just, it's easy. It's relatable. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of the challenge that I feel like people are sucked in is, you know, the no like and trust, right. That's, that's what everybody's out there trying to do is, you know, me, you like me, you trust me, you'll invest in my deal. And I just think people are leaning too much on that versus the actual outcome of the investment and the asset. And that, and that's what scares me. Um, but you know, everybody has their own prerogative to make whatever investments they feel are, are, are worthy of their dollars. But Brian, man, this was awesome. I, I really appreciate your perspective and the knowledge that you dropped. So how can the audience and the listeners get in touch with you out there uh, looking to connect? Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. This has been awesome. I think the questions were really good. And it's always fun to have a conversation with somebody that you've known. I've gotten to know you really during COVID. Never Absolutely. met in person, but we've talked quite a bit. We met on LinkedIn. So yeah, people want to get in touch with me. I'm super active on LinkedIn, as you've mentioned throughout this conversation. Brian C. Adams, Excelsior Capital. If you uh, send me a message, I'll respond to you. We'll set up a call, whatever I can do to help. Introductions, uh, you know, free advice. You probably get what you pay for, but I'm happy to do it. And then you can uh, sign up to the website, excelsiorgp.com. We have a newsletter we send out. We, we put a lot of content out there in terms of blog pieces, webinars, and uh, we try to be kind of a thought leader with not just real estate, but taxes, insurance, uh, finances, politics, things that I think people need to be aware of. We spend a lot of time trying to put that stuff out there. So would love for you to become part of the community. Yeah, and I, I can speak to that firsthand. I know we didn't plug Excelsior as, as much uh, within this conversation, but you know, one of the biggest things is you guys do run a top-notch shop, right? I mean, you guys work with best-in-class management, best-in-class locations. And so I think that's one of the things that people fall by the wayside when they're looking at some of these different asset classes is, oh, Houston or oh, Dallas or oh, you know, Salt Lake City or whatever the case is. I guess, you know, you just need to know 
it's one of your points that I've heard you say many times, it's the sub-market within that market. You know, great, you, Salt Lake City could be a great market, but unless you know the, you know, the fundamentals of that sub-market. But yeah, Excelsior is top-notch and I highly recommend everybody signing up for your guys' newsletter because you guys send out some tremendous content. So Yeah, it's like that stat, you know, the most common place that people get into a car wreck is three miles from their home. Yeah, I think you should invest in real estate the same way. Think about how you spend the majority of your time. It's probably in the same 15, 20 minute loop around your house. That's what matters to me, not kind of what's going on. I mean, big picture, I think obviously is important, but how you live your life is how you should look at real estate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you again so much. Really appreciate the conversation. Best yeah, of luck to you and uh, get looking forward to hearing the lock, lock up that deal in Kansas City. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.